we've been looking at, at, at rules for holy living. We've been looking at how we uh, uh, worship as, a, as individuals, how we worship as a church. We've looked at husbands and wives, how they are, are operate together. Uh, we've looked at fathers and children, how we should be functioning there. And now we're moving on to a different section. All of this teaching that uh, I'm trying to bring here really is emphasizing the fact that Bible application into our lives. Does that make sense to you? This is the Bible passage. How does that apply in my life? How does it apply to me? And today uh, I'm tackling uh, a, a passage um, which is uh, Ephesians 3, uh, 22 to 4, 1. And we'll also be turning over into, um, sorry, that's Colossians 3, and then we'll be going back into, into uh, Ephesians in a moment. Um, it, it, this is going to be slightly different, slightly dangerous this morning, because uh, I've actually asked for one or two contributions uh, to, for, from, for some people, um, which may or may not, on previous experience, uh, be, be uh, a light, enlightening or alarming to myself. Let's see what it says here um, in, uh, you'll see why in a minute. Uh, and let's just see what it says here. So Colossians 3 starts off like this. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there will be no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. And if we turn over the page backwards to Ephesians chapter 6, it says this, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favour when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, do, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord and not men. Because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him so this is a passage that really is all about work and it should in fact speak to all of us here because uh, either as someone who has to do work or has someone uh, who uh, or has someone to do it for us some may even have a mixture of both employing uh, working for a living uh, whilst employing someone to do work for them. But it virtually involves everybody here who has to work, unless you're a certain age and you're retired, in which you change bosses 
and you suddenly become, instead of working for an employer, most of us guys suddenly find that we are now working for our wives and doing um, untold tasks there, unpaid, and often... Uh, and what? Unappreciated. As most of you know, most of my, my role, uh, principal role, is to do the ironing and the gardening, cleaning the car, and any other duty that I may be asked to do. So if you see me uh, going around Sainsbury's or Tesco's, I'm a gopher. Uh, and, and Maureen will say, right, will you go over and get one of those? And uh, can you go over there and get so-and-so? And can you go and get such-and-such? And, such? and uh, I always say to her, where will you be? And she said, I'll be in a cheese counter. And, and you go back, and they're nowhere near it. Nowhere near it. And you wander up and down, Sainsbury's or Tesco, looking up the aisles. And they're never anywhere to be seen. <coughs> and then you find them looking at the jams. And you say, I thought you were going to be, we're right on the other side of the store, I thought you were going to be at the cheese counter. Well, I haven't got there yet. And, and, you, and you're always in the wrong, aren't you? Absolutely true, isn't it? Yes. yes. I don't know quite where they go or what they do, but you'll, you'll often see men looking very harassed up and down the aisles. <laughs> try. <laughs> but some of us in this room have been employees. Some of us... Uh, have had to work for a living. Most of it, in fact, have had to work for a living. Some of you uh, have been managers, and we're going to come on to that a little bit later on. Some of you may be employers in your own right. Paul starts uh, both these passages addressing slaves. Slaves, he said. Um, in both passages, slaves. Now that word can cause hackles to rise at the thought that Paul was justifying what has now come to be regarded as a terrible indignity inflicted on men. Let's see if I can get this going. Uh, so here we have servants. It, it, it's, this is from the message. Has it quite slightly differently. Servants, do what you're told by your earthly masters. And don't just do the minimum that will get you by. Slightly different, isn't it? Do your best. Work from the heart for your real master, for God, confident that you will get paid in full when you come into your inheritance. Keep in mind always that the ultimate master you're serving is Christ. The sullen servant who does shoddy work will be held responsible. How about that? Actually, God is watching what you do, and you will be responsible for shoddy workmanship. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't cover up bad work. And masters, treat your servants considerately. Be fair with them. Don't for a minute forget that you too serve a master, God in heaven. Why isn't this working? That's better. And a passage from Ephesians, which these two run together, says this, Servants, respectfully obey your earthly masters, but always with an eye to, to obeying the real master, which is Christ. Don't just do what you have to do to get by, but work heartily as Christ's servants, doing what God wants you to do. And work with a smile on your face. How about that? Right? Smile! 
always keeping in mind that no matter who happens to be giving the orders, you're really serving God. Good work will get you good pay from the master, regardless of whether you are slave or free. And it's talking, by the way, not today, but in the future, when we get to heaven. Masters, it's the same with you. No abuse, please, and no threats. You and your servants are both under the same master in heaven. He makes no distinction between you and them. Now, I've no doubt that uh, some of you, uh, hackles might even rise at that. But let's just go back to this issue about slavery. Why is Paul talking about slaves? Shouldn't he really have been taught trying to abolish slavery? Why is he trying to keep this status quo? Well, slavery was endemic in the Roman Empire. Let's just see what somebody called uh, William Barclay, uh, a, a, a renowned uh, uh, commentator, he is quoted by John Stott in, in, uh, in the book on Ephesians. And he said this, and I found it quite amazing. It has been computed that in the Roman Empire there were 60 million slaves. They constituted the workforce and included not only domestic servants and manual laborers, but educated people as well as doctors, teachers, and administrators. Sixty million people were slaves in the Roman Empire. So it would have been unrealistic of Paul to really to have tried to have tackled that issue about throw off your, 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 your chains and all the rest of it. He had to deal with the here and now. He had to deal with things in the world that he was living in. So do we. His words, however, are timeless, and we can substitute the word workers instead of slaves and still come up with godly principles for guiding life today. So what we end up with is this. In Roman times, you were a slave. In present times, you're a worker or an employee. In Roman times, you would have been the master. In current times, you would have been an employer and a manager. I say some of us, some of you here, will have been uh, employers or managers. And so these words actually have a word for you. We look at today and think of employment conditions. We think of how life was. But in actual fact, although slavery was abolished in the mid-1800s, I think something like that, Actually, the, the work of people and the work of life carried on uh, in, in very much the same way. So uh, Nigel will tell you, for instance, he did served an apprenticeship of five years, seven years? Five. Five years. Uh, often some, some trades were seven years. And you were actually tied to that employer for that period of time. You couldn't move off. You couldn't say, oh, I, don't, I don't want this job anymore. You were tied. You were bonded to that employer for those years. And you had to serve your time through. And initially, you were treated very much as a, as a job's worth, as a go anywhere, uh, uh, do anything. That was apprenticeships, which they're now reviving. Denzel, can, can you pass the mic to Denzel? Denzel, uh, uh, it, it, uh, a man we, we respect enormously, but actually, 
I asked Denzel about his childhood and his parents, so within easy living memory about working. Easy living memory. My, grandfa my grandfather started in the coal mines at the age of 12. And that's not, I mean, that's in my living memory. My grandmother uh, was a maid in Erdig Hall, uh, living in the hall, I suppose, at the time. So that's part of my memory. And that's, well, it's not long to me. I don't know how long it is to some of you, but it's not long to me. Thank you. Maureen's mother left school at 14, uh, and her first job was in service. She went to work, was it Hampton Court she worked? She went to Hampton Court, which is a palace in, 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 uh, in, in Surrey. But 14, she went straight from school, left school on the Friday, and in Monday she was working as a domestic servant. And that was typical, was it not, in your day? The children left school. I mean, um, Dorothy said that she was very fortunate in that her, uh, in, her headmaster persuaded her parents to let her stay on at school. And, and she went on. The school leaving age was 14. Is that right, your, your age? 14? 14 children left school. Uh, before that, before the First World War, it was 11. It was 11. Children went to work at 11. So actually, the, the whole concept of working, employment, was not that far removed uh, from slavery. In today's workers, um, or employees, basically, they're contracted to do a job. Terms of employment. And generally speaking, you have a set wage. Uh, you're going to get paid for so many hours per week or month, and that's what you do. This may be well paid, or it may be minimal. Some of you pe people in this room are actually doing jobs on the minimum wage. That's the very minimum that you can be paid. The work that you do may be stimulating, or it may be mind-numbingly boring. Conditions you work in can be pleasant, or they can be arduous. The rewards can be high or very low, maybe no rewards at all. But it's still work. And Paul has some well-chosen words to help us through the myriad of feelings the world of work generates in some of us. I have no doubt that in this, most people in this room will have been through some form of abuse at work, some form of unfairness, some form of bad treatment. Would that be right? Most of you have experienced that in one way or another. It may be bullying in the, ha in the workplace. It may be harassment in the workplace. It may be unfairness in the workplace. Actually, most people in this room will have experienced some or all of this. And we actually have to try and come to terms with what Paul is saying here. He knows what we're talking about. He's talking, after all, to slaves. Slaves, you see, were people who would have been from all walks of life. I was reading in the Sunday paper only this week, not today's issue, but this, about tutors. If, you have, if some families can employ tutors for their children for their O's and their A-levels. And, 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 and she was saying it causes a dilemma in some quarters because when you take the tutor on holiday with, to give the, the child some tutor, where do you place them in the hierarchy of the family? 
Do they eat with the rest of the servants or do they eat with the family? What do you do in this situation? It's quite a problem, isn't it? I, I know Nigel struggles with this all the time. Where should I put? But actually, this is what happens. We, we have this social hierarchy about where we put people. So Paul, first of all, says obey or do as we are told. Compliance without backchat or complaining or wanting to do things our way. That is ever so hard, is it not? When somebody tells you to do something and you think, no, 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 I don't agree with that. I don't think that's right. But doing things without backchat or complaining or wanting to do things our way is the first requirement of the Christian worker. Obey. Obey. Now, more enlightened employers ask employees for suggestions on how to improve efficiency or how to save time or money or materials, suggestion boxes. That, that happens in most workplaces now. And I think that as Christians, we do have a duty to contribute to workplace effectiveness, not least to help contribute to improving the environment. So we may well come up with ideas of, of how things can be done. Secondly, we're told here that we have to treat our bosses with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart. Now, it's easy to do those things for an employer you like and who is considerate to you. Actually, when I moved to Shropshire to become the uh, manager of the Education Welfare Service, uh, my boss, um, a lady, uh, was a high flyer. Uh, she was an education officer and uh, later went on to become director of education uh, in, 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 in another county uh, and has since moved on to quite a high-flying uh, government job. But she said to me Dave, once, she said, David, said, um, do let me know if you have any good ideas about changing the service or things that we can do differently so that I can incorporate them in my report and get the credit for it. She actually said, straight out. Now, you, 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 you come up with the ideas and I'll take the credit for it. And I thought, blooming shake. Um, but actually, that's how the system worked. Uh, she would take the credit for it. And if possible, the director of education would also take the credit for it and get all the accolades. Anything that went wrong, you were on the mat. And so very early on, um, uh, the press rang me up uh, about a situation in one of our schools, in one of our areas, and I, I, I didn't think clearly first about what was, I was saying. Um, and it was misquoted, or it was quoted out of context in the paper, and the school in question went bananas over it. And I was hauled on the coals uh, up in front of the director of education, and, and, and he said, you made a real pig ear of that, didn't you? Um, and, and out of that came, never reply to the press straight away. Always have pre pre a prepared and written statement, something I learned uh, from that situation. But you can get yourself into trouble. But sadly, most, sorry, most people experience some form of unfairness at work. Bullying, restrictive practices, unrighteousness, unforgiveness, discrimination, even at some stage in their career. I know a lady who, who was a Christian, uh, worked in a, in, in a fairly large organisation, and she had to put in a password to get into the computer. Um, and she'd had, she had a rather silly one, like the Lord is my righteousness or something like that. And her boss changed it to Satan. 
So every time she wanted to log in, she had to type in the word Satan. Just one of those pricks that get under the skin. And we had to actually talk to her about how to handle that situation, about what to do about it. See, in these circumstances, when you're not feeling treated fairly or lovingly or cared for at work, the temptation is to slacken. In today's parlance, we say, take a sickie uh, or just do the minimum to get by. And that feeling can be absolutely overwhelming. But Paul says, work wholeheartedly even when they can't see you. Even when there's nobody about. Even when it's only you. And actually you can turn on the computer and turn on the games and play a little game of solitaire or whatever it is. Be, you shouldn't be doing that, David. No, I won't. Right. Um, and I got caught out once and, and uh, it's a huge embarrassment. Um, I, I actually have to go into work, in my, my, even now in my study, I have to do at least 50 games of solitaire before I can actually start doing anything. And Maureen's coming in and says, you're still doing it. I'm, I'm not. And I'll try to switch it off before, but she creeps in. And, ah! and, and, and I've never known anybody who can walk so quietly as Maureen. She plays uh, on my deafness, catches me out time and time. I don't go into porn, porn channels because I would be in dead trouble. Right. Um, more than that we are told to work with respect fear and sincerity of heart even to bosses we actively dislike or who abuse our trust it's so easy in situations like that to run down managers or employers and to be contemptuous of them perhaps to undermine their authority, even to perform less well as a payback. It's easy to do all of these things. But anger at unjust treatment can quickly well up, unless dealt with, cause us to become bitter and resentful. Many, many people feel very bitter and resentful at their employer or or their conditions at work. But let me just remind you of these verses that Paul wrote. In your anger, do not sin and do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Have you noticed how some of these verses that apply so well here also apply so well there? This is why the Bible is living and active. It it addresses us in virtually every situation. So we mustn't allow ourselves to get caught up with these things. But we still have to do these things as if we're serving God himself. I know it's not right. I know it's unfair. I know this shouldn't be happening. But Lord, you've put me here. I'm going to serve you. So we cannot do things that are unrighteous or illegal just because the boss says so. Now that might mean an unpleasant confrontation. and We may have to think things through very carefully before taking action. You don't just go flying off the handle. And as an aside, part of being in fellowship like this is together in a church means that we're able to take advantage of advice and guidance from leaders or mature members uh, before embarking on actions that could give us a problem later on. So what we say to people is, if you're thinking of doing something, before you do it, just talk it through. Just turn it over in your own minds. 
actually as a leadership team we are learning now to become more accountable to each other and to say well let's don't don't let's do this let's do that let's approach it that way so we would encourage I would go so far as to say even expect people to discuss with pastoral oversight life-changing decisions before taking action it would be I think totally unfair to expect the church to stand by costly decisions that you have made if no previous discussion had occurred would you agree with that if you've if you've done something of your own back I'm sorry you got yourself into this mess you get yourself out of it if you've done it with the church's backing then I think the church owes you a responsibility in this so why then is this attitude to work so important well Paul reminds us that as Christians our lives are no longer our own we have become slaves of Jesus this happened when we heard the call of God when we realized that we were sinners and we needed the salvation that only Jesus could bring and accepted the work he did for us on the cross once you did that he purchased our lives with his life would you agree with that he purchased our life with his life and we freely at that point gave him lordship over our lives Lord I am yours so now we live our lives to another higher master and not the employer that we know and we do all our work both in the kingdom and in the workplace and in the home for him so we are not serving men but God so there is no church life home life work life it's all one does that make sense we don't divide it up it, it is compartmentalized but actually it's the same Lord it's the same God it's the same faith it's the same Christian expectation slave stroke workers then have been set free by Jesus to do everything his master asks of him and to a higher standard than an ordinary employee might do and it's very much shades of Matthew 5:41 when it says if you're asked to go one mile then you go the extra mile you do the other, the other thing employers are also addressed here they face the same teaching they must be fair to people under their direction and control now we have here in our church uh, at least one well, more than one people person who has been both an employee and an employer and I've asked Steve if he'd like to come out and just uh, share some thoughts uh, about himself Steve has worked uh, as a director for some very large multinational companies um, so he has he probably tell you uh, employed people uh, himself so here's his perspective on being an employer I have here a little note from David it says five minutes underlined two exclamation marks <laughs> so it's, it's, it's very difficult because I've prepared separately from, from, from David so forgive me if I go over some of the things he's already uh, gone through uh, 
In terms of what I want to share, a master is essentially someone who's agreed to provide for the slave in line with the law in exchange for the slave laboring for him. And in uh, Hebrew times, uh, when this was written, there was a significant amount of law in Leviticus that gave slaves status under law. And it said what you could and couldn't do. Um, so we need to kind of throw away our 18th century idea where slaves were people who hadn't chosen to be and actually understand that these verses were written for people who had decided to become slaves for a fixed period of time because in the year of Jubilee, um, all the slaves were freed. So it was a maximum of, of uh, six years. And um, I suppose what that really is saying is this is, this is actually quite good for anyone on a fixed-term contract. Uh, okay. It's also worth noting that the same advice, some of the same phrases even, were written to two separate churches many miles apart, and there was clearly, uh, it was clearly an issue. I was driving past the Castle Cement Works in, uh, in Padeswood this week. Does anyone else know where that is? You, you know, it's the one that drops all the stuff on your car when the wind's in the wrong direction. I've noticed that it's owned by a company called Hansen, and Hansen is in turn owned by a German company, which is called Heidelberg. Uh, unsurprisingly, it's based in Heidelberg. If I was a worker at Castle Cement, chances are it would say Castle Cement on my payslip. However, the money given to me in exchange for my work ultimately comes from Heidelberg in Germany and indeed changes currency at least once when it does so. So in a very real way, a worker at Castle Cement, if you follow it along, actually works for someone other than the name on the payslip. And in just the same way, if we follow that chain, we find that it is God and not our employer and certainly not our boss who is our provision. And that whilst our employer is the instrument he uses to provide for us, we are all, whatever our status, employees, employer, or both, ultimately working for God. Now, for Christians who own their own business or self-employed, it's worth just reiterating that we too, for I am one, ultimately work for God as well. In practice, we're not self-employed. For a Christian, that's actually the wrong description. We're God-employed. So it doesn't matter what it says on our payslip or whose signature is on the check. We're all working for the Lord. And the central principle in these two pieces of scripture is that we must conduct ourselves accordingly at our place of work or business. This principle, as one writer puts it, transforms the secular into the sacred. Now, if you're in a position of authority, a supervisor, a manager, a department head, a director, really anybody to whom people report, Ephesians 6, 9 is very blunt. And it reminds us that God is the ultimate authority and basically says the fact that you have such a position, big guy, doesn't mean he favors you over those who report to you. That is a very important thing to note. God does not favor the employee over the employer. So the first principle for any Christian employer is that we must remember who we work for. What does that mean? Well, a couple of things very briefly. 
Firstly, I believe it means to understand the difference between what is right and what is permissible. This marks out the Christian in the workplace. Our elective representatives uh, in London have crashed headlong into this, haven't they? Titanic and iceberg. Okay, there's a bunch of them who are fine. They are men of integrity. There's a small number of them who frankly look like crooks. And sitting in the middle are a whole bunch of people who do not understand the difference between what was permissible and what was correct and what was right. And we, the voters, we look at these people and we go, they lack integrity. It's so important to understand that difference. And we do have these MPs bleating, well, I stayed within the rules. In my own experience, actually, a lot of the challenges I've come across has been in the area of expenses. I used to travel uh, widely uh, all over the world, as did many of my colleagues. And I was uncomfortable with some of the things my colleagues claimed on their expenses. And we had, a, I suppose, a fairly cosy uh, operation going, a bit like Parliament, where we signed off each other's expenses. And I was embarrassed to sign off some of the things I was asked to. And I would always have to say, quite sheepishly, for some reason I would feel ashamed, look, I'm sorry, I'm not comfortable with that. So they'd just go to another director who, who was. And from my perspective, there were some things which the others all claimed for that I did not. It's understanding the difference between what is permissible and what is right. We used to go to the Far East a great deal, and it's in the culture that if you visit a supplier, and some of these guys, we were giving tens of millions of pounds of business a year, they would give you a gift. Um, it's not an attempt to bribe or anything like that. It's a, it's a cultural thing. But some of these gifts were increasingly lavish. Um, we got way past a pen in a book and into um, a full set of golf clubs or, on one occasion, a 4 by 4 Jeep. <clears throat> if you're the Christian and you're in that situation and, and everyone else is fine with it, well, what, what, what do you do? How do you handle it? Okay, you understand the difference between what is right and what is permissible. And you, putting your hand up and saying, I don't think we should do all that, doesn't really fly with the guy who's now driving the nice Jeep or is playing golf with the new clubs. So you just say, well, I'm very sorry. that I really appreciate that gift, but I can't accept it. I can't accept it. A book would be lovely or a pen. And word got around. I got a lot of pens and books. <clears throat> okay. And what happened ultimately, actually, is the tax authorities got involved. They said, these are gifts in kind. There was a tax audit, mayhem. Because <clears throat> I was fine because I had pens and books. <clears throat> Secondly, we need to treat others with the same impartiality that God treats us all with. No favorites. <clears throat> now, this might be an odd illustration. I hope I, hope I, I do this well. <clears throat> uh, privately and professionally, um, I do not favor businesses run or owned by Christians. I have a responsibility to use the best suppliers and to have a relationship with the best. Now, <clears throat> theoretically, they are one and the same. Okay, 
And occasionally, I have to say they are. In practice, well, folks, those of us in business, we've got some, some work to do. When I do deal with a Christian business, I make it very clear that I am dealing with them on a commercial basis. I don't expect a special rate or special circumstances just because we both love the Lord. Okay, and nor is it fair for me to. I don't expect, I remember hearing the phrase, oh, give me a special deal because I'm a brother. You know, forget it. <clears throat> Impartiality is a challenge to those who run businesses. Uh, it's very difficult. Um, in terms of those who report to us, they should be treated not according to their religion, but their performance. And indeed, their bosses should be treated not according to their religion, but their performance. And I'm sure others here have been absolutely disgusted that people who have led major businesses into the brink of bankruptcy and have had to be rescued by us, Mr. and Mrs. Taxpayer, have walked away with tens of millions of pounds. The difference between what is right and what is permissible. Thirdly, treat individuals with respect. I have it written down here. Do we conduct our interpersonal relationships the same way in the office as we do in church? But it did occur to me that maybe we should just check that we conduct our interpersonal relationships in church well first. So that that question then makes, that makes sense. Do we practice what we preach in terms of punctuality with regard to deadlines? Or with we ourselves working unsupervised? Remember who we work for, remember who we represent. Colossians 3.17, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If you're in a position of authority, watch out for pride. You and I are special to God, but then so are the people who work for us. And we are no more special than they. In our place of work, we are the representatives, possibly the only representatives of the living God. So thirdly, remember we're under observation. A uh, bit of a strange illustration. <laughs> in the 1950s, when uh, Las Vegas was being built in Nevada, and it was becoming the gambling capital that it still is today, uh, it's generally accepted that the, the casinos were run by organized crime. It was the Mafia. Uh, probably what's not too well known is that these crooks, these uh, murderers, these criminals in every sense of the word, insisted that their money was handled only by members of the Mormon faith. Why? Mormons don't steal. Whatever else you say about them, the people who were up to their necks in criminality could recognize honesty. We're under observation. What do people recognize about us? Francis Schaeffer wrote a great book um, entitled The Church Before the Watching World. Now, I want to make it clear to you that I am not suggesting you go out and buy it. Almost certainly, Nigel has a copy in his garage. It's a great title because it captures in a few words that you and I daily rub shoulders 
with people outside the church and they're looking for God, many of them. And some of them are aware that Jesus claims to be the way to God. And whether we like it or not, they will form their conclusions about Jesus largely by watching those of us who claim to follow him. Now, there's a unique set of challenges here if you're the boss. I've been in a situation where I've had to make hundreds of people redundant. It's awful. I lost sleep on it. I remember Belinda telling me that while she was sorry I lost sleep on it, she was rather glad I was the kind of guy that lost sleep over it. <laughs> so you do these things properly. You explain to people clearly. You communicate well. You treat them with respect and dignity. You go through a legal procedure. You do your best for them. But frankly, what you're saying to them is, look, in a minute, I'm going to punch you in the face. And the fact that you've communicated well about punching them in the face, the fact that you've taken great pains to make sure they understand that the punch is coming, does not make the punch any more acceptable to them. Now, I've been the person punched as well. I know what it's like. Some of those people will recognize that you have really done your best for them, but they will be few. Most of them will be bitter and will be resentful and will be hurt. So we try our best, but it doesn't always work in the manner that we would like to. I once conducted a survey of the employees on their site for a client, and it included a section on how the workers perceived their line, line managers and the senior management team. And the outcome, which was anonymous, that's why they used a, a consultant, was e even stripping out people's general tendency to be negative, a bit of a surprise and very revealing. I'm not entirely sure what that client did with it, to be honest. It came as a shock. Now, I've similarly been through a process when I was a senior manager of a business and I was one of the senior managers who was covered in the survey. They were essentially asking my team and the people on the shop floor, what they thought about me. So the challenge to anybody to whom people report is this. What would those who report through to you, or report to you, have said? Would they have known that you're a man of integrity? Would they have recognised that? Would they have made the link between you being a man of integrity, or a woman of integrity, and the fact that you are a Christian? Would they have seen Jesus in your conduct? So three principles. Remember who we work for. Remember who we represent. Remember we're under observation. Thank you, Steve. Okay. I was going to ask um, Pete uh, to come in, but... I'll, I'll, I'll pass up because time is moving on. Um, Paul reminds us again that Jesus is fully aware of our working conditions. But as you bear up under the strain, the grace of Jesus will carry you through. He's alongside us and strengthening us. Paul also had his eye on more than a gold watch and generous pension at retirement. He says, if we work God's way, we will receive a reward in heaven. For the Son of Man, he says, is going to come in his glory with his angels. And then he will reward each person 
according to what he's done. As Christians, we tend not to um, dwell on that too much, but it's absolutely true that God will reward you for what you've done and how you have performed. So, what's our conclusion? Well, that these verses speak equally to workers and employers stroke managers. We should be wholehearted in everything, whether work, family or church. And that means, incidentally, that next Saturday when we go up to Brintay, let's be wholehearted about being up there. Now, you may only be coming for an hour, that's fine. You may be coming for the whole afternoon, that's fine. You may be face painting, you may be selling cakes. But actually, we want people to see, because we'll be going under the label of Gateway Church, that we are people that are worth knowing. Do you, do you understand that? And, and, and we, we, we are asking for conversations with those people up there. Not that we're coming up there to teach them how to live, but actually we're coming up there to respect them, to love them, and show them something of the love of Jesus. And whatever we do, we're to work as if we were serving the Lord. Now, I'm very conscious that through all of this, we may have stirred up some feelings. There may be some people in this room who need prayer uh, for their work situation. There may be people in here who would like prayer to find a job. So at the conclusion of this meeting, which is about to happen now, we're going to have coffee. If you'd like prayer, can I ask you to stay behind and see myself or Nigel or one of the others, and we will ask uh, God to just pray for you in that situation. Otherwise, coffee is outside. Don't forget, up at Brintague, at 12 o'clock on Saturday. Thank you.